Uh, I'm assuming you should be well rested after an extra hour's sleep. Uh, maybe a little self-confession of how many of you actually forgot it was that night that you're to put your clocks back? Raise your hand. Yeah, there's a few, right? And you woke up and you're like, Is it, oh, I got another hour, right? So then you said, hallelujah. That's what hallelujah means. I got another hour. It's redneck theology there. So, well, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning, if you would, as we continue our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're new with us, that's primarily what we do here is teach through the book of the Bible so you can understand God and, and the whole context of the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. Uh, I did a little research and actually even had a conversation with a physician uh, that I know and uh, found out that science tells us there are around 30 to 40 trillion cells in the average human body and that these cells, the 24-7 bases, are always repairing themselves. Repairing themselves because since Genesis 3, we know we actually live with diseased bodies. That, that's going to show itself one day when this body no longer breathes, when we die. But in this normal state of repair, uh, if you're like me, you're continu continually monitoring sort of how this body is doing. Like, how do I feel uh, do I have the same energy? Maybe it's consciously or subconsciously. You know, do I notice something different? What's that spot on my arm? Uh, why is my head hurting? There's always this monitoring. Is that right? Sort of say, what, what's going on with me physically? Uh, our diet, we do go to get physicals, we take medications. But this is what's true of all of us, I hope. <laughs> When we get an infection of any kind, whether it be in our sinus, our th throats, on our skin, uh, an infection of any kind, and we have a suspect that it is an infection, we take this very decisive and immediate action to go to a doctor and get antibiotics or get it surgically removed, right? And why do we do that? Here's why, because we know, even with little... Uh, limited medical knowledge, we know that just a little infection can turn into a disaster and kill the whole body. We ask our friend Wayne Armstrong, who had an infection in his tooth and within 24 hours was in a coma at Vanderbilt. It doesn't take long for just a little bit to destroy the whole body. And although this decisive action may be very painful in terms of time and money, yes, I dropped about $2,500 at our local hospital to support our community last Saturday for um, a, uh, what's, I don't even know what's it called, a, a kidney stone. How about that? Just donating to the community. Um, <clears throat> I want to make sure our hospital does well. It's very painful in terms of the money and the physical, like having surgery. We, we, we know that this action is going to bring that. You and I will do anything to save our lives. We'll take radical actions. There have been many men and women who have had limbs amputated gladly, gladly, so that they could live. And the physician always acts when they do act decisively for a patient. Guess what? They're doing it out of a motivation to cure and to help. It would be ludicrous first to go to a doctor 
And the doctor says, yep, you have an infection, but you're okay. Hope you have a good weekend. You're like, what kind of doctor is that? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes the church at Corinth, a spiritual hospital. That's not all the church is, but it is part of what the church is, a place where spiritually diseased people come and get well, a place where people sick with sin, addictions and burdens and hurts are cared for by physicians of the soul, if you would the pastors, the leaders, and other members of that body. And Paul wastes no time in showing us a chart of this man who has a serious infection. And this infection is not only threatening his life, but it's also threatening the life of the church and the influence that the church can actually have in the community at Corinth. So read with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It is actually reported, Paul writes, that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are, command, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. <clears throat> One of the things I love continually and, and amazed by about the scripture is that it tells the truth. It tells everything, good, bad, and ugly. If I was writing, I probably would have left that first five verses out. But I wasn't, and thank goodness it wasn't left out. Here's what Paul does here. The great physician surgically removes the infection. Paul wastes no time getting right to the point. There's no wading into the shallow of this issue. He jumps right on it very specifically. And he, he continues with this theme of divisions. As he speaks to their arrogance, as we've seen, it's caused divisions in, uh, in chapters 1 through 4. He speaks to how their arrogance has allowed a man in their own church community to have an ongoing sexual relationship with either his stepmother or his mother. As I read this week, there's, there's arguments for both. Regardless, that's not the issue here. The issue is that it's happening and the, it's an ongoing relationship because the word has or the word, verb has tells us that it's ongoing. It's not a one-time event. And then he uses this word sexual immorality. The Greek word there is a word you may be familiar with. It's pornonia. It's where we get our word for porn or pornography. And, and typically in the New Testament, this covers all kinds of sin outside of God's sexual ethic of one man, one woman in a marriage relationship for a lifetime. If you want to know, here's, here's what's God. God created sex. He loves sex. He knows how it works best. 
He, he designed it for a purpose and is for one man and one woman for a lifetime. And anything outside of that, the New Testament calls pornonia, one of the words it uses to describe it. Pornonia is often used in the list of New Testament sins, not because it's the worst sin, but because in the Greek culture in which the New Testament was written, sexual sins were so prevalent. The, the Greeks lost their minds when it came to sex, just like the culture we live in today. We have absolutely lost our mind when we look at God's design for it and how it's played out in all of life. The same culture that made Hugh Hefner a hero after his death, right? Then comes out and wants to be, have sexual ethics now. I don't want to get off track on that, but you get my point. But this pornonia was not even, Paul says, accepted by the Greek pagans. Now notice that the woman wasn't mentioned, probably because she wasn't in the church. The man was, and there's a lot at stake here. Here's what Paul's saying. This is an emergency. This is a spiritual infection that can kill the man. It can kill the church, and it can kill the church's influence in Corinth and the world. Paul says, this is a big deal. And everyone in the church is walking around saying, I'm okay. He's okay. We're all okay. Do you sense the problem? Paul had received a report about this man's sexual sin. <laughs> it's so obvious that this is a serious sinful infection. Paul says even the Pagans consider it immoral. I read a little bit of Cicero this week in a commentary where it said the Roman law, which wasn't the most ethical, legal culture in the world, said they even said this was wrong. And then in verse 2, what's even more concerning to Paul is not what this man has done, but the church's response in dealing with it. He makes this statement in verse 2. Did you notice he said, you are arrogant. The word you there is plural. Paul is speaking to the whole church here. <laughs> they were not boasting, obviously, about the, what the man was doing. But their arrogance showed itself in their tolerance for what he was doing and their passivity toward it. See, the... The Corinthians think that they are spiritually mature. Paul has already addressed that in the first four chapters. Yet, they are acting as if this kind of behavior is normal. Paul had already spoken to them about these kind of things he wrote, but they dismissed him. Chapter 4 tells us that. Their self-sufficiency and their self-trusting of their own thoughts, it caused them to twist in a terrible way what it meant to be spiritually mature. The Corinthians actually believed that there was no connection between our physical bodies and what we do with them and spiritual maturity. Meaning they could read the uh, the scriptures, they could sing, they could worship with their lips, but whatever they did with their physical bodies had no impact on the other. And we know that the New Testament actually teaches just the opposite. 
that we show our worship to God, and Monty talked about worship, more so with our lives than we do with our lips. So, the Corinthians had fallen into the age-old trick of twisting the scriptures to make them say what they wanted them to say to justify any action or belief or ethic they would have. Their pride had blinded them to the sinful brother's true condition and to their own. Paul tells them, instead of being prideful, you should be grieving. You should be mourning. This kind of pride, what it does, I thought about it and I thought it births the baby of bad theology. The gospel was not shaping the lives of the Corinthians. It was not informing their thinking. It was not informing their ethics. Though they had trusted Christ, but the gospel was having no direct impact upon it. Some would call it bad orthodoxy and bad orthopraxy. So, in verses 3 through 5, in contrast to the Corinthians' passivity, we already talked about this, a real man rejects passivity. And this is what Paul did this morning under the authority of the great physician. And as, a, as apostle, Paul says, when you come together, think of this, for your next worship gathering in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That's called rejecting passivity. <clears throat> to destroy what was carnal in him or fleshly in him. Paul says, remove this man from the church, from the fellowship of the church and turn him back outside into the world, the sphere of Satan, where Satan rules. We know in 2 Corinthians, another passage, 2 Corinthians 4, says Satan is the God of this world. Paul says, put him outside of the protection, the teaching, the accountability, the love, the safety, the unity, the security and grace of God's spiritual hospital, the church. And you put him out because Paul hates him, God hates him, and Paul's a judgmental jerk. Sarcasm. No, not at all. So that this man who has a spiritual infection, whose spiritual safety and life is at stake, may come to his senses and no longer be led about by his sinful passions. So that God's good, long, patient, redemptive purposes might be embraced by him. So he would be brought to repentance, to restoration, and return to intimacy of God. You may say, Jeff, where do you get that from the text? Look at the end of verse 5. Paul says, so that here is the purpose and the goal of church discipline. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In the verb tense means both now and in eternity. I could not help but think of Luke 15. One of my becoming 
one of my favorite verses or passages in the whole Bible. The story of the prodigal son. Where the father lets his son go and his son lost his mind. We don't know if it's for months or for years, but he spent all the father's money, all of his inheritance. And he did probably many things that this text speaks of. And it says he came to his senses and he came home. And his father threw him a great party. And his father was looking for him and hoping he would come home, standing at the end of the road every day, hoping he would see his son come home. That's Paul's hope here. That's God's hope here. When he says, remove him. My question is thinking for us, why did no one go to him to intervene? They all knew about it. Maybe they thought it wasn't their place. Maybe they didn't want to seem judgmental. Maybe they were more concerned for their comfort versus the man's spiritual safety and the spiritual health of the church. Maybe they didn't get God's grace to themselves, so it was very difficult for them to get God's grace to this man. I want to say to us, this is why we're in a body. If we see a spiritual infection, we go and we speak. And we go humbly, knowing that tomorrow it could be us. We go prayerfully. We go with a healthy fear. We go with the grace to redeem. But we go and we speak. John Piper says, the worst thing in the world is not my sin. The worst thing in the world is not getting caught in my sin. God's strange grace to us for us to get caught in our sin so that he can rid us of this infection and make us whole and healed. Church discipline today doesn't really happen that much. We have churches today and I don't want to go into all the details, but in the name of love, they celebrate and tolerate every kind of sin known to man. It's good. But is it really loving to let somebody waste their life and maybe even lose everything? We know it's not. Paul says, this man is, an, is a brother with an infection. Speak to him. The problem today is, though, is we do go and speak to them. Typically what happens is they just leave and go to another church and infect it. See, they couldn't do that in Corinth. There was one church, this church. Secondly, after the surgery is performed, the great physician instructs us, on the spread and prevention of infection. Look at verses six through eight. Verses six through eight. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore... Because of that sacrifice, celebrate the festival. 
not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the great physician, God himself, is giving instructions through Paul about the spread of and prevention of this infection in God's spiritual hospital, the church. Paul uses an an illustration here of how spiritual infection spreads and how to prevent it. He repeats this, boasting is not good. He's thinking in his mind, how can they boast in light of their very sick condition, meaning the church? How are these people in the church boasting when they are thinking they're spiritually mature and they're actually not? And this man's walking around and they're going, it's okay. Paul's going, how can they boast? It's like if we went to a hospital or a home and a man was on hospice and he was going to die within 24 hours and you found this man bragging about how good he felt and looked. You would go, does it make sense? It doesn't correlate. That's why Paul says what he says. The Corinthians have failed to realize how this man's sin has affected the whole community. The health of church is at stake. And so here's what he does. He gives us an Old Testament illustration. And, and we know you couldn't go down to the store in their day and buy a pack of yeast. So here's what they did. When they made bread, they would put a little piece of that bread aside from the big batch and they would let it ferment. And they called it what? Leaven. Leaven bread. So the next time they made a batch of bread, they would take that little piece of leavened bread that had fermented and they would put it in the new batch so that this new batch would what? Rise. No women want to pull out for Thanksgiving flat bread, right? So it makes their bread rise. So leaven became an illustration for sin, meaning sin such a small thing that can have a huge impact on the whole batch. And that's how Paul begins to describe that. And and we know instinctively that evil has this natural nature to spread. And so Paul is saying here, sin is like leaven in the body of Christ. It spreads. It affects the whole. It can lead to other sins, certainly, but it also can lead to affecting relationally and causing division within the whole body. So Paul says when there's an infection, sin, he quotes, cleanse out the old leaven so you may be the new batch of dough. So that you may be what you really are in Christ. And what are we in Christ? We're unleavened, untainted by sin. We're we're new, the new batch of dough. Or biblically, we would use the word we're actually righteous in our identity in Christ. Notice here, Paul does not say, get your act together and you'll be clean again. He says, you really are are unleavened. You really are righteous in the eyes of God because of Christ's work and your trust in that. How did that come about? Look at the end of verse 7. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul switches metaphors. He goes to the Passover in Deuteronomy. And he says, Christ was the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for you. And when you placed your trust 
In that sacrifice, by faith, it cleanses you from the guilt and penalty of sin. It removes the leaven in you. You're declared righteous, cured, clean of infection of sin. And though sin remains in us, we are seen as God as righteous. And so Paul connects our identity Christ to all of that. So we go back to those little lambs slain in Egypt. And their blood, we know, was wiped over the doorpost of those homes so that the people in those homes would be protected from the destroyer that God was sending. Paul is saying, so Christ, being our Passover lamb, has wiped his blood on us so that in God's eyes we are delivered from the destroyer and we are made clean. We are made unleavened bread. And Paul is saying here, Christ is present, not just to save us from the consequences of sin, but to actually begin to transform us out of our own sinfulness. He's saying we are called to live in keeping with what Christ has done, to become what we already are in Christ. One writer put it this way, he said, our change of behavior does not give us favor with God. That's a great statement to memorize. But our favor with God gives us a change of behavior. And we are favored by God, not because of ourselves, but because our trust in his son. So Paul says in, in basic language, you are a new loaf of bread by sheer grace. Therefore, become what you are, God's new loaf in Corinth. In verse 8, he says, therefore, here's the implication, celebrate this festival, not with old leaven, not, not living like your old life with malice and evil, but with the new unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And that's what the Christian life is, really this day-by-day -day celebration, being reminded of God's kindness and forgiveness to us in Christ. So Paul says, as he wraps up here, he wants us to know this. It is a sacred duty and responsibility that you and I, as members of this church, pursue together to prevent the spread of infectious sin. That's a body life thing. And so we go and we speak. Lastly, the great physician longs for an infectious, free environment. Read with me verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter. We had, I don't know if we've said this yet, this yet, but there was a letter previous, a correspondence with the Corinthians from Paul before 1st and 2nd Corinthians. 1st and 2nd Corinthians, obviously in the Bible, this letter's not. So we don't know what was in it, but Paul said this, what? I, and he was with them, so I'm sure he said the same things. I wrote to you in my letter, but not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers. He adds a couple more categories or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. Paul said you got to go to the moon not to do that. And who wants to live on the moon, right? 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're going to judge? God judges those outside, pures the evil person from among you. Now, if I didn't unpack this one, we might leave a little awkward today, right? So, God's desire is that this, his house, would be an infectious, free environment. Not sinless, necessarily, because that's impossible, but infectious free as little sin as possible. Let me explain. Paul's making a critical distinction here of how we relate to those outside the church and how we relate to those inside the church. And they've misunderstood him. And many uh, theologians say they misunderstood him because they were dismissive, dismissive of him and his ministries we saw in the first four chapters. So their pride rises up again. They thought Paul had said not to associate with any immoral person. And Paul says, that's ludicrous. You can't do that. You live in the world. Paul actually clarifies that this ban not to associate with it is those who are immoral believers. Church discipline, you can put this in your notes, is only for Christians. Because when non-Christians sin, they're just doing exactly what comes normal to them, what they're supposed to do. It's part of their job description. It's as normal as blinking. So here's what Paul is doing. He's repeating the words of Jesus in John 17 that we know well, which are what? Be in the world, but not of the world. Paul is saying here, live in this world, but do not embrace the values of this world. If you're a Christ follower, do not look like the world, do not live like the world, do not love like the world, and do not chase the things of this world. Because when we do, we can't be a light in the darkness. There's no distinction. It all looks the same. And we've lived long enough to know that either our lives or many other lives we know, you look at them, they're supposed to be a Christ follower, but there's no distinction between their life and a person who doesn't know Christ. Part of that's maturity. Part of that is rebelliousness. We are to be set apart to influence this world, and we can't do it when we look Live, love, and chase the things of this world. Can't do it. In verse 11, Paul says, We are, but we are to dis dissociate from or not associate with from a fellow Christian who does love, live, li does look, live, let's tongue twister, look, live, love, and chases the things of this world. But here's the question. Got to answer this question. What does it mean to not associate with what Paul would call, what we would call a carnal Christian who is deliberately and rebelliously guilty of sexual immorality, greedy, Paul adds some categories, a swindler, an idolater, a reviler, or a drunkard? 
What does that mean? The word associate means to keep intimate company with or literally mix up together. In 2 Thessalonians, this same phrase occurs only as a last resort, resort, Paul says. Meaning, if this malice living person fails to heed the exhortation to stop and repent, turn back to Christ and the church to get the infection out, only at that point, when someone has spoke and begged and pleaded and prayed and they say, no, I'm doing what I want, how I want, when I want, get out of my face. Paul says, this is when you pull that off. Even then, though, at the end of that passage in 2 Thessalonians, Paul adds, they are not to be treated as enemies, but as brothers and sisters. It does not mean that we do not speak to them. It does not mean that we are mean to them. It does not mean that we shame them. But it does mean that there's not intimate fellowship with them. It does mean that we don't get with them and we act like everything's fine when we know you're living this way because everything isn't fine. And it means when we do speak with them and we initiate with them, we are pleading with them to turn back to Christ. That's the conversation that's happening. And be restored. Think of these sins. There are other ones, but think of the ones Paul's mentioned here. Greed. As I looked these up, it made sense. A desire that takes action to defraud or take advantage of someone. A swindler, a person who robs and steals from people. A reviler, covers all forms of verbal abuse. It'd be a great one to ask yourself, how do I speak to my spouse? To malign, to slander, to twist the truth in my favor. A drunkard. He regularly given to drunkenness and the carousing and many other evils that it causes. For great clarity this morning, let me say that Paul is not saying that only perfect folk can be the members of God's Christian community. God did not come for perfect folk. While we were yet sinners... Paul's not talking about the believer's daily struggle with sin that we all have, that we admit, that we ask for help, that we fight against, that we swim upstream against, that we're three steps forward, two steps back, and we're in this thing together, but my sin is known, and I'm fighting, and I'm getting help for it. And I look, he's not talking about that person, that person that has a trajectory toward Christ. I want out. I'm leaving old leaven behind. <laughs> He's not talking about that person. He's talking about the person as a lifestyle <clears throat> who persists and live in deep infectious sin. The person who when another does, person does speak to them in a biblically beautiful Grieving, come home kind of way. 
that person says they get angry, they deny it, or they play the victim and turn it around so that now you're judgmental on them. They justify their sin. They hit eject on the relationship. And their infection grows. And then verses 12 and 13. Paul basically says God judges those outside the church. But discipline is for those inside the church. I always say this. I discipline my children but I don't discipline yours. I may think yours need discipline. <laughs> I'm not going to look at anybody when I say that. <laughs> but I discipline mine because they are mine. So what's our so what this morning? <clears throat> I think there's two. One is... How we as believers live is not just between how a person lives, a Christ follower is not just between them and God. So speaking to a person about their serious sin is not an option. It's essential for the body. It's your business. Matthew 18 tells us how to do this. You may want to jot that passage down. As I thought about this passage, I broke down and I wept. I cried as hard as I've cried in a long time and I thought I wish somebody had gone to my dad in the church for 20 years plus teaching Sunday school and everyone knew he was an alcoholic in a reviler, everyone knew, and they said nothing. I thought, how would my life have been so different and, and impacted in such a positive way had somebody gone to him and said, Jack, come on, man. <laughs> you can't live like this, bro. Claiming he was a believer. And my dad would say, you're right. Can you help me? thought about this. This is at home. James 5, 20 says, He who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Second, so what? A great time to do an inventory of your own life and determine if there are any secret sinful infections that could blow up into a scandal and cause division in this body. If there is, we want you to know you can voluntarily come to the physicians of your soul here on earth, members of this body and the leadership and say, I'm sick with infection. Can you help me? And you will be loved and given the greatest antibiotic of all grace grace changes us makes infections go away take a minute to wrestle with those two so what's